That little video is always so depressing, right? Just when you think it's good news, right? It's true and better, and then it fades. And so much in our world that promises to be true and better, new and improved, is just like that. It just doesn't live up to the hype. And one of the questions people have about Jesus is, does Jesus? Does Jesus live up to the hype? And the book of Hebrews is written in part to say, yes, he really is true and better. And that's what we're exploring in this series. Before I jump into that, I want to give you a couple of updates. Uh, a couple weeks ago, you may remember, uh, we... Um, Decided to send half our offering before it went to the church budget uh, to some churches in Romania that are caring for uh, Ukrainian refugees. I just want to thank you for that. Because of that, we were able to send them a little more than $47,000. It was an amazingly generous week. Um, So thank you for that. Uh, Yeah, praise God. And that money is already being put to work. Um, They've already found homes, uh, permanent homes for 75 orphans. Keep praying for that work because they are being given more orphans every single day. Um, It's a tragedy like one I have not witnessed uh, with this kind of clarity before. Also, they're using a lot of those funds to care for refugees as they just stream across the Ukrainian border into Romania. For most of them, they only have them, they're only there for like a day, really. They give them food, they give them clean clothes, and they send them on deeper into Europe because there's a fresh batch of refugees walking across the border the next day. Most of these people are arriving with nothing. They are not, they, it's not safe for them to drive. They are walking cross country to try and get out of the country. So be praying for obviously Ukraine, but for the Romanian church that we're supporting as they care for the Ukrainian people. Uh, I also want to make sure you uh, noticed uh, the Easter invite card. You got one of these on the way in, I hope. Maybe you got two or three. Uh, uh, Most of us made a Live the DNA commitment about a month ago. We said over the next three months we were going to do four things, and one of those four things was we were going to invite somebody to join us to be a part of First Christian Church. Well, um, it's been a month. We had three months to do it, and it's been a month, so you got two months left. Uh, So if you haven't done it yet, Easter would be a great time. Start thinking about who you're going to invite, be praying for that person, and this card gives you all the details, and maybe you'll want to uh, invite them. All right, let's talk about Hebrews. True and better. The main theme of the book of Hebrews is that what God has been doing up till now, God is now doing through Jesus Christ. And God is doing it better than God ever has, ever before. Our first week, we talked about the first claim in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is a true and better messenger. Than any messenger, God, than any prophet or any angel. And if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is up to, you look at Jesus. If you want to know how you respond to God, you look at Jesus. He's the true and better messenger. And then uh, last week, Janet preached a great sermon. If you missed it, go check it out online. I was traveling, but we worshiped online. Uh, and Janet looked at the next couple chapters of Hebrews where uh, the author argues that Jesus is a true and better lawgiver. Jesus is better than Moses. And the reason Jesus is a true and better lawgiver is because he's a true and better rest giver. 
And, and, and Janet just brought clear in that text, there's a warning in that text, right? Remember the warning of Hebrews chapter 3? Be careful lest you miss out on the rest God has for you. But there's also an invitation. We can be secure in our hope if we place our trust in Jesus, that the rest of God is for us. This is where Janet left off, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. We're just going to be working our way through the book of Hebrews. So if you've got a Bible, bust it out now to Hebrews chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, but you've got a smartphone with you, pull up your smartphone, open up your browser, just Google Hebrews 4. It'll be the first link. It'll be like Bible Gateway or something like that. That'll be great. Go there. Maybe you've got a Bible app on your phone. I want you looking at the text. Uh, we're going to dig through a lot of stuff today. Like most of these weeks, it's going to be a little complicated, but I promise if you do the work, it'll be worth it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. This is where Janet ended. If Joshua had given them rest, like if that had worked, if the rest provided through the old law had worked, well, God would not have spoken about a later day. But there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest rests from their work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Janet talked about that last week. She said, make every effort. And the way we do that is by putting our trust in Jesus. That's the effort we make, is to trust Jesus so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. And then the author of Hebrews makes a hard turn. A, a totally new direction, totally new idea enters the conversation. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, slicing up soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's not an entirely pleasant thought, is it? Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him <clears throat> to whom we must give a final account. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is laid bare before the one for whom we must give a final account. Hebrews has, out of the blue here, introduced the great problem of the human experience. God is holy. We are not. And if God sees everything about us, if everything about us is laid bare before God, then we don't pass the test. Because God will see how corrupt we are and how foolish we are and how doubting we are, how evil we are. I was in college in the 90s. And um, in the 90s, it was easy for a person to think that people were pretty good. Some of you remember the 90s. It was an amazing decade. Like, basically everything seemed fine in the 90s, you know? I was talking with a friend at school, and, and they were just staggered by this Christian notion that people were sinners. Like, they, you, know, they, like you don't really believe people are sinners. Like, look at people are good. Everybody's, everybody I know is a good person. What do you mean people are bad? I mean, little did I know that all I needed to say was, wait a decade, 
Like, I mean, no, none of, we don't worry about that now, right? Like, nobody's out there now saying, look around the world, read the newspaper. People are awesome. No. Quite the contrary. We're staggered. I mean, we're, we're just we're dumbstruck. How can one human be so horrible to another human? Everybody's staggered by that. That's the one thing that unites all the political parties and all the sides. Everybody is looking at the other side going, how can you be so horrible? And when you see that, when you see clearly the evil in other people, there are a handful of ways you can react to other people's evil. Uh, One way people react is they'll react with relief. Like, whoa, I'm so glad I'm not as bad as they are. That's called self-righteousness, self-righteousness. I'm so glad I'm not like them. And the upside of self-righteousness, and it has upsides, the upside of self-righteousness is you just feel great about yourself when you let yourself be self-righteous, that you're not as evil as those other evil people. The downside, of course, is that it's not true. And it doesn't actually solve the problem of the fact that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is laid bare. That means my evil is laid bare too. Another reaction, an honest reaction, when you see the great evil in other people is to react with vengeance, right? What can we do to to, to, to stop the evil? And man, that reaction makes sense, right? Because evil should be stopped. Evil must be confronted. There's a downside to that reaction, though, too. Because if we were, right, like if we were going to get serious and stop all the evil and figure out who all the evil people were and, like, get rid of all the evil people, like, are you sure you're not on that list? You know what I'm saying? Like, if they make a list of who all the evil people are that we're going to kick off the island, like, like, how confident are you about which list you end up on? You know what I'm saying? That could get out of hand, right? Like, a little bit of vengeance is one thing, but if there were lots of vengeance against all the people who have ever done evil things, I don't, I don't know. I'm a little worried about what list I end up on. There's a third reaction to when you look around the world. Let's go pick up yesterday's newspaper. And see just how awful people can be to one another. And that's humility. Where you say, oh my goodness, people are so evil. And I am people. You know, I am people. Some of you know the name Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a, um, he was a Russian man, a novelist and philosopher, um, he wrote a letter to a friend about how he didn't like Joseph Stalin, and the friend turned that letter in to the secret police, and um, he was arrested and tortured for a super long time, I forget, a couple decades, something like that. Wrote a bunch of books about his experience. One of the first books he wrote, but the last book, to, one of his later books to be published, um, in that book he's discussing good and evil. And he writes this. He says, if only it, if it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere 
insidiously committing all the evil deeds. And all we had to do was separate out the evil people from the rest of us and destroy them. But on the contrary, the line that divides the good from the evil goes through the heart of every human being. It's been 14 years in a torture camp under Stalin. And he says, the line between good and evil goes through every human heart. Now, the downside of this view is that it hurts to be honest about the fact that the evil we see in others lives in us, too. The upside, though, is this. It is the position from which you can actually begin to develop a right relationship with God and a right relationship with other people. When you finally recognize that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, not just other people, but that means me, that everything is uncovered and laid bare, and that the evil I see in other people, it lives in me in just a different form. When you finally get that, you are, you, are, you are finally at the place where you could begin to develop a right relationship with God and a right relationship with other people. And the next eight chapters of Hebrews, chapter 4 through chapter 12, are all about that. How do we, whose evil deeds have been laid bare before God, how do we begin to develop a right relationship with God? The relationship we want, the relationship God wants for us, the relationship none of us can secure on our own, but the relationship all of us would give anything if only we could get it. And the claim of these eight chapters is that Jesus is the one who accomplishes this. And what he does is he uses... The, um, the aspects of Old Testament and, and, and the Old Testament teaching and Jewish faith to understand Jesus. And over these eight chapters, he's going to say that Jesus is the true and better priest. Jesus is the true and better sacrifice. And Jesus brings a true and better promise, a true and better covenant. And that this is how Jesus solves the great human crisis of how do corrupted, sinful people have a relationship with a holy and good God. And we're going to start uh, where he starts, uh, with the claim that Jesus is a true and better priest. I hope you got your Bibles open. We're going to be working through it. I promise it'll be worth it to do it. If you got a Bible or you got a phone, pull up Hebrews chapter 4. It'll be up on the screen as well. And we start with a therefore. Remember what we said about Hebrews? Complicated theology, then blunt, clear sections. Thankfully, today we start with one of the blunt, clear sections. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He starts with his first claim. We have a priest. 
Most of us, that means nothing. To his original audience, though, they would have known exactly what he meant. A priest is a religious functionary who connects the people with God. That's what priests do. In religions all over the world, the priest claims to be the one who has the special skills or the special knowledge or the special rituals that help the people connect to God. The priest was the one who knew the way to maintain the relationship, the right prayers, the right sacrifices, the right penance, whatever was needed so people could have access to God. And he starts off with the blunt, clear command, you have a priest. So you have access to confidently approach the throne of God. But he anticipated some skepticism from his audience. Really? We have a priest that can let us approach God's grace confidently? And so what he's about to do in these next two chapters is explain to us the true and better priesthood of Jesus. So strap in with me, Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to read a big section here. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. That's why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when he's called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I've become your father. And he says in another place, this is Psalm 110, we'll come back to this, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Complicated, I know, but here's his first point. Jesus is a true and better priest because the incarnation makes him the only one who can bridge the gap. See, the function of the priest is connect the people to God. Jesus, he says, has been tempted in every way just like we have been. He can empathize with our weakness. He has suffered with us and knows us and was one of us. And so whatever you're going through today, Jesus is like, yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah. The grief you're going through, I've grieved. The temptation you're facing, I've faced. The struggle you have, I've struggled. I get it. Some of you don't believe that, but I want you to be clear. The Bible's super clear. The temptation you face, Jesus has faced. The only difference is he didn't give in to it. But that's good news for you, because that means the temptation you can't figure out how to survive, Jesus can, because he's been there. And at the other end of things, Jesus is now with God. 
Jesus is now fully God at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the true and better priest because he's the only one who can bridge the gap between our weakness and God's holiness. He's the only one. The next thing the author of Hebrews does is go through a a long and serious section of warnings. Uh, They're worth reading. Uh, They're beyond the scope of today's sermon, but the main point of the warnings is really clear. If Jesus is the only one who can bridge the gap, who can reconcile us back to God, then don't forsake your trust in Jesus. If Jesus is God's solution to the great human problem for how do we stand before the eyes of the one by whom we are laid bare and give account, how do we handle that? If Jesus is the answer to that question, then put your faith in him. And he ends that section, as he always does, with a word of encouragement, reminding us that we have a secure hope if we keep trusting Jesus. Verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. This is back to priestly image. The the, the, the inner sanctuary of the temple was the place where God dwelled. Only the high priest could go on behalf of the people. And, and, And Hebrews says Jesus is just there. He is just there on our behalf with God, present with God for you. Jesus is the true and better priest. His first claim for what makes Jesus the true and better priest is that the incarnation makes him the only one who can bridge the gap. And now, as we move into chapter 7, he's going to add to that claim. Jesus is a true and better priest because the incarnation makes him the only one who can bridge the gap. And his priesthood, unlike every other priest through all of history, in every religion, his priesthood is for all people and for all time. See, this was an important argument. Now, this little section, Hebrews chapter 7, many of us will find very confusing. But in that present moment, it it, it solved a pressing question. Because Jewish Christians wanted to know, how can this guy, who is not from the house of Levi, how can he really be a priest? Because the priests are from Levi. And also, how can a Jewish priest be everybody's priest? Because they were just the Jewish priests. And while most of us aren't losing sleep over this question, a lot of them were. And so Hebrews chapter 7 is his explanation for how Jesus is the priest for everyone and for all time. I'll start in verse 20. He has become high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You all remember Melchizedek, right? No, we don't. He's barely mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham wins a war and he gives praise to God. He's figuring out, how do I worship God? And he goes and finds this dude named Melchizedek who is a priest of Yahweh and the king of Jerusalem. And he gives him a tenth of everything he owns just as an act of worship to God because he wants to praise God. And he's barely mentioned, except he's also mentioned in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 says, there will one day be again a priest of the order of Melchizedek who will be priest forever. And that's what we're picking up on. Chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek was a king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. 
Now the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. King of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. And think about how great this guy was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. He's he's about to explain to us how a non-Levite can be a priest. That's what this is about. Now, the law requires that the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are descendants from Abraham. But this man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without a doubt, the lesser, Abraham, is blessed by the greater, Melchizedek. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestors. His argument is, yes, Jesus is not a Levite. And you might wonder, how can he be a priest? He says, but there was another priest who also wasn't a Levite, whom even the Levites honor. His name was Melchizedek, and Jesus is a priest like him. Verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood. Boy, we're going to see this argument throughout the book of Hebrews. It's basically saying, if the old way worked, if the Levitical priesthood could have really given us the relationship with God that we wanted, if indeed the law, and, the, and, and indeed the law given to the people established the priesthood, if it worked, why was there a need for another priest to come? The one promised in Psalm 110, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it's clear, our Lord descended, Jesus, was from the tribe of Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. But what we have said is even more clear, that if another priest like Melchizedek appears one who has become priest not on the basis of the regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of his indestructible life. For it's declared again, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. If that were to happen, if someone were declared a priest not on the basis of the regulation, but on the basis of their indestructible life, this is the resurrection we're talking about here. If that were to happen, verse 18, well, then the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced. A true and better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, not without a promise. Others became priests without any promises. But he became a priest with a promise when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And because of this promise, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been lots of priests of the other kind since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent and better priesthood. He says, because Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, that's what allows him to be a priest for all people. He isn't a Levitical priest, priest for the Jews. He's a Melchizedekian priest, priest for everybody. And because he's eternal, he's the priest for all people, for all time. And then, after this complicated theological section... 
he does what Hebrews does. Remember we've said the secret to reading Hebrews is complicated theological sections followed by blunt, clear sections that are introduced by the word therefore. So if you get lost in the complicated stuff, in fact, if you just got lost just now, I might have even gotten lost. I'm actually not sure what I'm talking about. But don't worry, wake up right now because it's about to be clear again. Verse 25, therefore, oh, that was the word we were looking for. Shoo, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Remember we had that problem? All things naked and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give the final account and who could stand. Therefore, he is able to save completely those to come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I love this verse. You know that phrase, I live for that? Have you ever heard somebody use that phrase? They're like, oh, do you go hiking? Oh, I live to go hiking. Uh, Or do you like naps? Oh, I live for naps. Do you enjoy pizza? Oh, I live for pizza, right? You know that phrase, right? It means the thing you love so much, it's your favorite thing, right? Pay attention to that verse. What does Jesus live for? He lives to intercede for you. Like, Jesus, I've gotten out of sorts with God. Could you help me reconnect God? He's like, oh, I live for that. Jesus, I've fallen short again. I need my sins washed clean so God and I can be in a repaired relationship. Could you help me out with that? He's like, oh, I live for that. That's my favorite thing. I've just been hanging out waiting to reconnect you with your maker. That's my best thing. I love that verse. And the part up for us, top, save completely. This word save, I don't do a bunch of Greek stuff, but we've got to do a little bit of Greek, right? This word save, it, it, it means to rescue, like, like we think of it, but it also means to heal and to make whole. And this word completely, I love this word completely. Um, the Greek word is pan telos, and pan means like all or all the way, and telos means like to the very end, but not like to the end of the story or to the end of the train track but like to the end as in like the purpose for which you made you were made the conclusion of the of, the, of, the, of God's design and desire for your life and so to save completely is to save all the way forever in every way until you are absolutely all that God ever intended for you to be. And I am so far from all that God wants me to be. And to think that Jesus would be like, I'm going to rescue you all the way. Like, all the way. Some of you, like, have this image that you're, like, barely saved. You know what I'm saying? Like, whew, I just got along the line. Jesus just got me in the doors. No, that is absolutely not Jesus' plan for you. Like, all the way healed, all the way whole, all the way rescued, all the, to the very end. And he lives for this stuff. That's what it says, right? He's just hanging out, waiting to intercede for you. And you're like wondering, like we're so timid, like Jesus, would, would, you, would you forgive this sin and, and help me get on the right path and, and get some healing in my life? And would you repair this? And he's like, I live for that. That would be awesome. He goes on. Such a high priest, this kind of high priest, the high priest I've just been talking about, the one who is for all people, the one who is for all time, the one who was incarnated so he understands our weakness, the one who is exalted so he exists at the right hand of the God living to intercede for us. This kind of high priest, 
Oh, that meets our need. Yeah, wow. Like, I feel like we're, I think we've the problem solved. This, such a high priest, truly meets our need. One who is holy and blameless and pure and set apart from sinners, exalted upon the heavens. Unlike all the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his sins and then for the sins of other people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. This is where the author is going to focus next, and we'll focus on this next week, how Christ is also the true and better sacrifice. But for now, he's going to focus on the priest. For the law appoints as high priests. This is what the law does. It's the best the law can do. It appoints as high priests, men in all their weaknesses, who can't really get the job done. But the promise... The oath, which came after the law, appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. And he saves you all the way, not just barely, but all the way. And he lives for this stuff. Like it's his favorite thing is to reconcile you back to God. And of course, this points us all the way back. Maybe now we can understand how this passage started. Maybe now you'll get it. Verse 14 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest. And see, now you know. We have an eternal high priest. We have a perfect high priest. We have a high priest who understands our struggle. We have a high priest who is for all people. We have a high priest. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold on so tight to the faith we talk about. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. I just got you got to dial into that verse. Some of you are struggling with a temptation, and you think the very fact that you even have the temptation makes you unwashed and unloved and too weird to fit in with the rest of us. You know, the fact that you even have the desire, you think it makes you broken. Well, this says Jesus has struggled with every temptation we have. The only difference is he didn't give in, which means he knows the way out. That's the only difference. Yet he did not sin. And then verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Have you ever heard, seen people paint a picture or tell some imaginative story of, of what the, 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 the judgment throne of God would be like and people begging for forgiveness and all that? Have you ever paint that kind of picture? That is not a biblical picture. It's right there. The biblical picture is you walk up and maybe there's some surly guard at the door saying, what are you doing here? I mean, you, you are naked and laid bare. I see everything wrong with you. You are messed up. You're one of those humans and humans are evil. Everybody knows that. What are you doing here? And we just get to say, I'm with Jesus. And then we just walk right in. That's how we approach the throne of grace. Confidently. Because that's the kind of high priest we have. He has made advanced arrangements for your arrival. And what will we find 
What will you find? Some of you want to know, what will my experience, if I were to approach the God, if I were to approach God through Jesus Christ, the God who is holy, me with all of my sin, how would God receive me? And some of you are so afraid, worried, we don't know the answer, but we know the answer. It says it right here. It's on the screen. It's on your phone. It's in your Bible. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I want you to look at these four words. we got four words up here, okay? I want to ask you some questions, and I, I've put the answers up on the screen because I want this to be a super easy test, okay? A little quiz to see if you were paying attention, but we're going to make it super easy because the answers are on the screen, okay? How sufficiently does Jesus save? And the answer is completely. Let me try that again. How sufficiently does Jesus save? Say it. Completely. Let's try that one more time. How sufficiently does Jesus save? How long does Jesus save? For what duration of time is Jesus interceding on your behalf at the throne of the Father? Say, eternally. How long does Jesus save? How long does Jesus save? Let's go back to the top. Make sure you got the first one. How sufficiently does Jesus save? How long does Jesus save? And if you were, under the name and blood of Jesus Christ, to approach the throne of a holy God, how could you approach God? Say confidently. How do we approach God? Say one more time. How do we approach God? And when you meet that God, the one you have dared to approach with confidence. How could you be so bold? How will you be received? Say, mercifully. How will you be received? How will you be received? Say, God will receive me. It's hard to even say that sentence aloud, isn't it? So unbelievably true. How sufficiently does Jesus save? How long does Jesus save? How do we approach God? How will we be received? How sufficiently does Jesus save? How long does Jesus save? How do we approach God? How will God treat us? And that's true because we have a high priest who is true and better. The only one who could bridge the gap. The only one who could solve the problem. The only one who could make promises so unbelievably ridiculous that even I could be saved completely. Even I could be saved eternally. Even I could approach God confidently. And even I could expect to be received with mercy. Let's pray together right now. Oh God, we give you praise. For you are the one who sent your son that we might be saved completely. You are the one who has raised him from the dead where he now dwells with you in glory that we might be assured salvation eternally. You are the one who has opened the doors of the gate that sinners like us might approach your throne room confidently. And then you made us a wonderful promise. That when you meet us, you meet us 
mercifully. Thank you, God, that you have made a way for this evil world to be saved and for a sinner like me to know you. Thank you, God. We give you praise and worship you through the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing. And if you need to approach the throne of grace today, you do it confidently. You meet me down front. Put your trust in Jesus Christ.